You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Take a look at uh, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And it says, again, he, speaking of Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, seeking how they might destroy him. Let's just take that section. As we've seen already in the last couple of chapters, a big part of what Mark recounts in Jesus's ministry is the healing ministry. We see it in all the gospel accounts, but it seems really front-loaded here. Like we got right to the point. John says, here's Jesus. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah. Jesus is there on the scene and he, uh, you know, is tempted by Satan, begins ministry, proclaims the kingdom, his good news that the kingdom of God has come near. And then all throughout this beginning recollection of Jesus's ministry, it's Jesus heals this person and he heals that person. And then he calls this person to come follow him and and begin building his kingdom here on earth. And we see it here again, that Jesus is continually looking for the person that needs him, right? And there is a, there is a, there is a humility that is present as you read through all the healing accounts in the gospels, there is a humility to a person who knows that they need to be healed when they're sort of at the end of, I can do this myself. And oftentimes we sort of pose this as sort of like a macho guy thing versus a, you know, sensible female thing. Like women are smarter. They ask for help when they need it. Men are willing to get lost and not ask for directions. And you know, I'm not going to the doctor and blah, 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 all those kinds of things. A lot of that's true. But what we see throughout scripture is, is this humility in the people that receive Jesus. And it's because they're at a point where they realize they're broken. (laughs) They realize they're in need and there's nothing else for them to do. Now, on the surface, reading through this, there would seem to be, um, this, this is sort of the beginning point of where we see the religious system of the day. And when I say religious, remember we had that discussion, religion isn't bad. It's only bad when you follow through rituals without meaning and purpose. When you think that the ritual in and of itself, the religious practice and devotion is going to do something for you, but there's no actual faith there. You haven't surrendered your will to the Lord in any sense. And this is sort of where that point comes, where we start seeing them do this, build a case against Jesus. Look at Jesus and be like, he's causing too many problems for us. This was our synagogue. This is where we taught the law of Moses. This is where we instructed people. And here's Jesus coming in. And he is now, in their mind, transgressing the law. He's breaking the law. And, but the, the issue here is, of course, um, the letter of the law 
of Moses, right? Everything that God told his nation, Israel, here's the laws that if you follow these laws, it's going to go well with you. If you follow what I tell you, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be protected. All the things that are going to be good for you are going to take place when you obey the law that's given me. When Jesus comes onto the scene, the debate becomes, or the issue becomes, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. That ends up being the issue that we see contrasted against itself over and over and over as we go through the Gospels, beginning, I think, with this point. Now, the purpose of the law, we know, was good, right? The law is good for those who follow the law. It keeps us in line. It keeps us healthy. It keeps us safe. Paul talks about that. The purpose of the law of Moses was to showcase the holiness of God, the power of God, and his great love for his people, this affection that all the way through the Old Testament, the prophets would would speak from God to the people. And on and on, it talks about this like marriage relationship between God and his people. Talks about this intimate connection that God has with his people specifically. And, And that was the purpose of the law. Wasn't just to say, here's the rules, follow them or else. It was like, here's the structure of how our relationship works. Here's, here's how you will be able to relate to me in the best way. And that's, that's the purpose of, of the written law. The spirit of God's law, though, even the reasoning that he has behind the written law, has always been to welcome home those who are in need of healing and or restoration. That's why God, as well as giving the law to his nation Israel, would instruct them to welcome in the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner, the person who wasn't a part of their nation, that Israel could become a home for them. And and they could come home to the father through becoming a part of the nation of Israel. That same thing is true for us now. When we talk to someone about becoming a part of the church or hearing the gospel message and surrendering their life to Jesus, it's not just through, here's the rules that will make your life better, right? And, and oftentimes I think we view that, right? God's Bible, God's scripture is like the handbook to life. If you follow these things, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Like that oftentimes is how we, how we sort of position what God has given us in scripture. And, and the way that we need to think about it is the way that we see Jesus have compassion on this man, right? So they're watching Jesus in verse three. First of all, uh, when he entered the synagogue in verse one, a man was there with a withered hand. That just speaks of that reality that the gathering of God's people isn't to showcase how well we're doing at our Christian walk. It's not to show up and show people how good we've been doing as Christians. It's a place to welcome in people who are broken. It's a place to welcome in people who need to hear the message of salvation, the message of healing. Like there should be people who are in need when they show up. And if someone shows up and they're in tears or they're hurting or they're like, it's a funny thing. And it's not too much in regards of a critique. I'm not trying to critique everything, but this whole movement that we have of showing up at church with the countdown on the clock to the beginning of the service, because we're going to launch into this great song and it's going to be this party. Like there's something missing in that because what it tells you psychologically is that when I show up at church, I better be ready to party and I better look good. Like I better feel good and look good. And I have to come happy and ready to jump and clap with the worship leader. The reality is, is that 
that, that gives a false impression of what this is supposed to be and what it's supposed to serve. Now, should we just sing songs that are like depressing old hymns that are like, you know, with an organ and stuff? I don't know. I like organs. That might be kind of cool if someone knew how to do that. But, but no, it, it, but it should be a place where there is a, a solemnness in the sense of like a respect for whose presence we're in, number one. But number two, that it's a place of healing. It's a place for people to come and be seen and not have to hide what's going on inside of them. And, and I think just that fact that there's this man with the withered hand there and that Jesus sees him, pardon me. And in verse three, said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he asked this great question. Is it lawful? These are the ones who are supposed to know the law. The Pharisees know everything about the law. They know the intricacies of whether you could spit on a rock or spit in the dirt on the Sabbath, like we talked about, right? That's, that's, that's these guys. And he asked them the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Doesn't that seem like it's a re- doesn't that seem like it's kind of an obvious answer? Right? Like whether it's the Sabbath or not, the human reason that God gives in us and the compassion, the heart that he has given us because we're made in his image, right? Is that okay, it's the Sabbath, but which one should I do? Should I do something good or bad? Should I should I save life or kill life? Right? Well, it's obvious. It doesn't matter what day it is. I should do the thing that's right. I should look to save. I should look to help. I should look to heal. Now, here's the part that that gets Jesus. They were silent. Isn't that crazy when someone gets put in a position where they're like, I know the answer, but I don't want to say because it's going to somehow reveal something about me that exposes me in front of everybody else, right? Like, so like if they, if they answered, if they answered and said, oh yeah, we're supposed to, you know, save life instead of kill. You know, and they answered Jesus in the way that, that was right, then the other Pharisees would have been like, you'd be breaking the law too. You'd be a heretic. There's, you couldn't be a part of the, of the Pharisees anymore because you weren't following after the law. And what, what I love is Jesus' response, verse five. And he looked around at them with anger. Now there's, a, there's an important connection that we have to make. Like I'm good with the anger part. That's obvious. I'm good with like being angry at people for doing wrong things and being sinful. Cool. I'm good with anger. The part where Jesus elevates it and where it sort of becomes something far more effective than just being disappointed or angry in someone's sinful behavior. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. The fact that Jesus looked at sin, he looked at hard hearts he looked at people who didn't understand the spirit of the law. They only wanted to enact the, the, the letter of the law. It grieved him. It hurt him. And, and it, it, it broke his heart, in other words. And I think that's something that I know I've missed out on in my relationship to those who are not yet within the family of God. It's very, very easy for me to get angry at sin. It's very easy for me to self-righteously look at someone else and go, that person needs Jesus, they're wrong, and I'm going to prove it to them. Versus having the motivation that comes from that heart of Jesus, where your heart's just broken when you see someone in sin. Not, not just angry. Angry because, yeah, see, sin destroys a person. But most of the time, I'm angry at sin because it somehow offends me or it inconveniences me. Someone else's sin, I look at, I'm just like, sheesh, that's a temptation for me, perhaps, or, or it's causing me turmoil theologically. But if I don't get that part of Jesus where he's grieved at people's sin, then my compulsion to share the gospel, my motivation to go to people who need to hear the gospel 
I think that's what that I think that's what holds me up so much of the time in like speaking out the gospel to someone or sharing the truth about Jesus is because my heart hasn't been broken for those people. And yet when it is, when you love someone and and you just see that person and, and they're broken and they're hurting and you know it's because of sin, man, when you really love someone, you'll do whatever it takes to help them. You'll say the hard thing. You'll confront the issue, but you'll do it because you're coming from a place of love. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand, verse five. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians were um, one of the sects of the Jews. There were different sects. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you had the scribes, and you also had the Herodians. And the Herodians um, were more aligned with the political motivations of the nation of Israel at that time. And they were called Herodians because they were people who were drawing connections with uh, Herod, Herod Antipas. And they were, they were making those sort of, um, they, how do I say this? Like they were the people who would have been standing on stage campaigning for, the, for Herod. And they were sort of the religious backing of the political movement. You get what I'm saying, right? I'm trying to think about it in modern terms. So the, so the Herodians simply were trying to um, find favor with the government by making compromises, by making deals, by supporting things that the Roman government wanted to do within the, within the Jewish community there. And those religious leaders were conspiring with the political leaders to do away with Jesus because of the impact he was having on the culture. So the Pharisees the religious side, the truly religious side of the Jews, when Jesus is messing things up in the, in the synagogue and healing people on the Sabbath, doing what is right according to the spirit of the law, they run off and tell the Herodians, the political party, and they conspire with the political party to go, we need to get rid of this guy. He's causing problems for us. Here's the warning. Here's the thing that I think without going too deep into this, but touching it and then sort of walking away, there needs to be a big red flag caution moment of thought and meditation anytime we see religious organizations and political organizations joining forces there's we we just have to be cautious about that now let me add a caveat to that i believe more so now than ever that we need people of faith christians specifically to be engaged with politics meaning individuals called by god to go run for city council to go run for mayor, to go be senators, to go be congressmen. I think we obviously know that worldly systems are corrupt. They're not holy by any stretch because there are worldly systems. But we also know that God's in control of those things, that he raises men up and he sets them down, just like he did with Pharaoh, right, in the time of Moses. That said, knowing the corruptness of the government and all those different types of things without getting into any of the other, you know, conspiracy theories, uh, we need Christians in those positions. We need Christians who have that, that sense of civic duty to say, no, we're, we're occupying this land. God has placed us here. We need to have an impact there. Um, a good friend of mine ran for uh, one of the school board positions here in Springfield several years ago, and she was elected, um, had to end up moving to another state, but, but she was elected to take that school board position. And she just had that conviction from the Lord that said, somebody has to stand up for what's right. All that said, that's what's taking place here. 
And that's the warning is like, okay, when we see a church or a denomination or a whatever sort of linking arms with a political party and making statements and their sermons on Sunday are about who they should be voting for, big red flag, big issue at that point. That's not what we're called to do as the church. The church is in the business of doing what Jesus did, being hands that heal, serving people, proclaiming the good news, building the kingdom. That's what we're called to do as the church. Now, the most practical application of what we see Jesus doing here in the healing of this man and and the restoration of his withered hand is the truth that when we highlight the goodness, the kindness, and the loving mercy of God, there's no answer against it, right? Like when we actually are doing the things that reflect God's heart, right? Is it better to, to heal or to kill, right? To save or to kill? Jesus asked the question, which one? Pharisees don't want to answer. They're going to get in trouble if they answer. But then Jesus does what's right according to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. When we do what is right according to the spirit of the law, there's no answer against it. No one can, no one can, can accuse us anymore. I just found this quote. It's not even in my notes. Um, this, was, this was powerful. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind... People may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. The things that we do that represent the heart of God, whether anybody else acknowledges it or sees it or recognizes it, the reality is that they don't have an answer for it because it wasn't for them. It was as a representation of the heart of God to his people. It was as the call that Jesus placed on our life to go make disciples, right? Like that's, that's what it's representing. Important for us to remember that that's what we are to highlight, the goodness of God the healing that he brings to people who are in need, who are broken and are withered, and Jesus will restore them. There's no answer against that. Looking into verse seven. So we see Jesus healing physically, the one who needs healing. But now we're gonna see Jesus heal spiritually. Verse seven, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Not only does Jesus heal physically, which oftentimes is the attractive thing. I want my life right now to feel better. I don't want to have to bear the burden that I have, right? Physically. But the thing that's important here is the fact that Jesus heals spiritually as well. Take note. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, 
Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Isn't it amazing that in a world that thinks we, we have so much knowledge and, and so much technology at our grasp and, and so much information that we have, that people still are unwilling to simply confess that Jesus is God. The demons know it. <laughs> they have better insight and theology than a lot of smart people in the world who, who want to deny the existence of God. And while Jesus heals physically, I think the more important healing is the spiritual healing. That the demons that were present in people, that's the indication here that some of these people as they were sick, the fact was is that they actually had a demon in them. They were being affected physically by something spiritual. The healing that they really needed, yes, it was physical, but more importantly, it was spiritual. They needed to be rid of the darkness and they needed to see Jesus for who he was. It is amazing here that, that we, we hear him saying, listen, hey, boys, have the boat ready because <laughs> we may get crushed. So when we think about that, I, I, I tend to think of ancient times as just sort of smaller than what we see now around us. Do you know what I mean by smaller? Like just everything's smaller. Towns are smaller. Houses are smaller. Groups of people are smaller. All that kind of stuff. Crowds. But the reality is, is that the fame of Jesus is spreading because remember the things that have been said about him. He speaks as one who has authority, which means the fact that that would attract people in that day says that there wasn't any authoritative teaching going on at that time. They were, they were devoid of authority. Nobody was saying anything that really meant something. And so he was attracting people because he spoke with authority and he was attracting people because he was addressing the needs that people had, their brokenness, their hurts, their need for healing. Jesus was addressing those things. I think the same is true for us in, in the church today. This becomes a model for us in the church. We want to heal physically. We want to provide meals for people. We want to help people when they're in need with the physical things that they have need of. Yes and amen. But we also have to be that voice of authority and truth that speaks to the core issues of life, that we need to be rid of the darkness and we need to enter into the light. That's the authority that we have to have, both the voice of Jesus uh, spiritually and the act of Jesus physically. Now, the funny thing in looking at the examples of Jesus when he heals, perhaps you were raised in an environment, if you're, if you're a longtime church person, I'm not sure where everybody's background is from, but certain traditions within the history of the church are very skeptical of things that have a spiritual nature, like uh, healing, tongues, prophecy, those kinds of things. And there's good reason for that because we've seen a really poor interpretation of what the, what the scripture says about the work of the spirit. And we've seen what's called abuse of the Holy Spirit, people claiming the Holy Spirit, moving them and doing something. And it's just them. It's just their lust or passion or their desire. And, and that turns into something ugly. But I don't think we can, as we often say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we have to recognize that in the ministry of Jesus, and take note, the ministry of Jesus, not us, the ministry of Jesus, there's healing. There's healing, there's miraculous things that take place. And I know some people want to say, well, that ended with the, with the age of the apostles, those kinds of things. But, but when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, as we've studied and spoken about before, when he gives instruction on how the spiritual gifts are supposed to be used, and he writes that to the church, that's not just for that day and age, it's for the church of all time. 
that we have an indication of how we're to use spiritual gifts, how they're supposed to be applied, what the purpose is. It's always for the purpose of glorifying Jesus, not building up a ministry, not building up an individual church gathering or a person's, person's you know, speaking career, or preaching career. And the thing to, to remember in terms of reconciling the fact that like, can healing happen now? Can someone who's sick or broken be healed? Yes, they can, but not because you or I pray for them necessarily. But it's because of the presence of Jesus that they're healed, if they're healed. And that's the other thing we have to realize. Not everybody's healed. There's some who will claim that in every, every instance in the scripture, when someone came to Jesus and they were sick or broken or in need of healing, that he healed everyone. And that might be true in the accounting of Jesus. But what we know to be true is what Hebrews chapter 9 says. It's appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. Even if there is a healing at some point in someone's life, our time on earth is limited by whatever the span of life is for each individual person that God decides. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows what the number of our days are. So whatever that last day is, it's, we're done. That's all there is in terms of our life here. And so if God should choose to heal us, if Jesus heals someone in the moment, that's wonderful. But they are still going to die at some point, unless the Lord returns and and gathers us together uh, to be with him for eternity, which that's what we would all hope for everyone. But the thing that we we see Jesus laying the example here for is that it's the name of Jesus, the Son of God, that has this power and authority. It's not somebody's shaking voice. It's not somebody's gyrations. It's not somebody's handkerchief necessarily. It's not somebody's whatever they choose to do. It's the name of Jesus. The demons were recognizing that he's the son of God. They were proclaiming it. And then they were leaving the people that were sick. So Jesus is the thing that's important. And he's the operative uh, agent in terms of healing. I love that worship song. There's this worship song that... um, it's called Your Great Name. I think Natalie Grant sings it. It says, the enemy, he has to flee at the sound of your great name. That's such a beautiful song. And it's such a beautiful truth that I think is reflected here. That whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. There's an imperative for us here. And what that means is there's some instruction for us by way of Jesus's example For us individually, but I think for us as the church, apostolically, meaning as Jesus sends out his emissaries, the disciples who he appoints as as apostles, and then we take the apostles' teaching and that mantle gets handed down throughout the generations all the way to our day and age where we're supposed to go out and keep building the church. We're supposed to go out and keep proclaiming the gospel. There's an example here that we are to continue doing the healing work of Jesus. It's Jesus who heals. He's the one who does things. But can we expect that if someone is in need of healing and we pray that God heal them, that they can be healed in that moment? Yeah, I think we have to expect that because we see Jesus doing it. But I think we also understand there's a flip side to that coin. That in our frailty, in our humanness, we haven't been perfected in how we pray even. That's why the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, because we're not doing a very good job of it. 
in our imperfection, in, in even coming to the Lord with the right requests or how to pray, all those kinds of things, I think, I think the Lord also then uses us in very practical ways to heal. That's why most hospitals were started by Christians. That's why most higher education learning institutions were started by Christians. That's why there's so many nonprofit organizations and ministries that operate for the purpose of bringing healing and comfort and restoration to people. That's why you have places like the Eugene Mission. It's not just a soup kitchen. It's a place where people come to have needs met and to be told about Jesus and the healing that is possible in their life through Jesus. And they get to show the love of Jesus in that way. I think it's a part of the apostolic nature of the church that we serve those who are most in need. And it's what helps to establish our witness in the world that the faith that we speak of and the faith that we proclaim is authentic, it's real, and it's true. And we see that in Jesus' example here. As we move on to verse, verse 13, Jesus, we've seen him healing physically, we've seen him healing spiritually, and then there's just been this back and forth that's been going on throughout the first three chapters of Mark's accounting of the gospel. We see Jesus heal, we see him then call people. He calls people to himself. Verse 13 says, and Jesus went up on the mountain. Take note, stop just real quick. What does that remind you of? Jesus going up on the mountain. I don't mean like Old Testament. I mean about Jesus's own behavior, going up to the mountain. What did he do when he would go to the mountain? Yeah, he'd go and meet with the Lord, right? He would go out to desolate places. He would go out and, and spend time with the Lord. So when we see this reference to him going out to the mountain, we can automatically make that connection and go, there's probably a good chance he was spending time with the Lord seeking out the Father, right? Good. Here's what happens as a result of that. As he went up on the mountain, he called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. So this is where we get the distinction of those who are disciples, learners, students of Jesus. He's the rabbi, the teacher, and they're, uh, they're gathering his to his school of thought, if you will. That's how the rabbinical system worked. And, and then within that group of people that he called to himself, he appointed 12 to be his apostles or emissaries, the ones who are sent out. So there's an understanding here that it wasn't just Jesus and 12 guys. There, there was, but there was most likely a larger gathering of people that would also follow Jesus throughout his walking through the, the nation and his teaching and his miracles, all those things. In fact, we know this to be true because in another accounting of the gospel, Luke 10, we hear about Jesus sending out 70 as well, right? So there was his 12, but then there was 70. And then in another accounting of the gospel, we hear about a group of 500 of his disciples that were empowered to go out and take the gospel. And, and all that means to say is that there's something beautiful about how Mark recalls this, that Jesus went up to the mountain, we can make a reasonable assumption that he was spending time with the Father. And as the result of that is Jesus calling people to himself and then appointing the 12 to be sent out with the message that he's teaching, you think that perhaps he was asking the Father, like, who am I supposed to be calling? Who's supposed to, who am I supposed to come? Who am I supposed to ask to come here? And what's beautiful about that is that Jesus says, and, or the scripture says, and Jesus called to himself those whom he desired and they came to him. 
I don't want to get too like, like sentimental about this, but this is important for us to sort of latch onto. Like if you're in the faith, you have to reconcile that with the fact that Jesus wanted you. Like he, he actually <laughs> was in communication with the father and was just like, yep, I want that one. And I want that one. And I want that one. And when he calls, when he calls, we came. There's something beautiful about that. And the further and further I go into my, into my faith and my desire to know the Lord and, and to pursue holiness and all those things, the motivation used to be, I want to get to heaven, right? When I was young and early in my faith, I'm scared of hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, right? That's why I want to follow Jesus. And then as you learn a little bit more, it's the excitement of there's really cool spiritual things that happen, right? Maybe God will use me to pray for someone and they'll be healed. Maybe I can speak in a tongue. Maybe I get to teach a Bible study. Maybe I get to lead worship, right? All these different spiritual things become the attraction. But I think the further and further you go through life and the more and more you learn about the Lord, the less and less it becomes about what I want or what I get out of the relationship and we get humble to the point of realizing the reason I'm in this relationship at all is simply because he wanted me and he called me. And there's something really, really beautiful about that. Don't ever forget that Jesus wants you. So much so that he, that he spends time with the Father discerning who's, who's going to come and what am I going to have them do? There's a big group of people. So there's, there's a group of people. But Jesus says, yeah, but there's 12 that I have a specific mission for. I have a specific job for. And who knows what it is that God's going to call you to do. I think that's part of the adventure of it. And that's part of the, the, the beauty of it is that it's just about the calling. It's about Jesus saying, I want you and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you in some way. Jesus would tell his disciples, the fields are white they're ready for the harvest. Look out and, and see the fact that there are tons of people that need to hear the gospel. They're ready for it, in fact. And they're ready to be brought into the fold. And he says, but the workers are few. The workers are few. And so we should have a sense of excitement and, and joy in the fact that Jesus would call us and that he would say, I've got something for you to do. And there's something powerful about that. It's also incredibly important in the way that we consider ministry. And this has been a, a lifelong pursuit of mine in terms of understanding this connection. John Piper years ago wrote a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And it was aimed towards pastors and ministry leaders and, and churches in particular who had sort of come under this influence of treating the church like a corporate experience. Like Pastors were not, not worrying so much about theology, but they were worrying about um, how to be a better leader and how to grow your congregation and how to empower your servant leadership and all these different kinds of things. And it happened in the, it started in the 80s, which, which kind of makes sense just with all the garbage that was going on in the 80s in America. It was all about me, 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 more, 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 all that kind of stuff. But I think there has to be a return to the simplicity of the fact that being in ministry has nothing to do with whether you went to seminary or not not about applying for a church job. 
ministry is about understanding that Jesus calls each one of us and that he puts us in the places that he needs us and asks us to do the work of that job, whatever that might be. I found this quote in relationship to that idea. It says, we cannot simply pick the laborers in God's harvest in the same way that an employer seeks his employees. That should be pretty convicting to a lot of churches who have entire web searches for, we're looking for a new pastor. (laughs) And they turn it into this corporate search. I just think that has fed the greed of the American church in a really unhealthy way. It goes on and says, God must always be asked for them. And he himself must choose them for this service. You cannot make yourself a disciple. It is an event of election, a free decision of the Lord's will, which in its turn is anchored in his communion of will with the Father. God chooses us. He calls us. He elects us. He brings us into his family through adoption. And then he sends us out into ministry. Ministry is not something you apply for like a headhunter in the corporate world. Ministry is the, life of, is the life that Jesus has called us to in the context we currently live in. That's convicting for me. I've joked about it before, you know, like, oh, we get to live in Springfield, Oregon. I get to work at a high school. I get to work with freshmen, all that kind of stuff. But it's true. He's called me specifically to that context. And wherever you find yourself, whatever it is, wherever you might be, as happy or unhappy as you might feel in those circumstances, know that God has called you to be in that place. And that when the time's right, God may move you. Or he may just say, nope, I need you here for a long time. (laughs) When we follow Jesus, things get exciting. Take a look at what happens here. He appointed the 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have, it, and have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus has already shown the example of what he's doing as demons are being cast out. And then he tells his disciples, now the things that I've done, I showed you how to do it. You go do it as well, right? He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave, gave the name uh, Bo- Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, by the way, again, I'm catching up with the rest of you, but like that episode of The Chosen where James and John are like calling fire down from heaven, it's hilarious. It's so good. Jesus is literally looking at them like, seriously, fire from heaven? This is what you want me to do to them? Like, it's so awesome. Anyway, loving that. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Bar- Bartholomew, pardon me, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is interesting. Jesus calls to him. Those who he chose, consulted with the Father most likely, and then chose these people to come and and be with him. And he appoints 12 of them to be his apostles, the ones that are going to live with him, and that he's going to send out as his emissaries. And then he goes back to his home, his hometown, and he's done all these amazing things, and people are following him, and he's like got crowds of people wanting to get close to him. But then his family heard about it. And they went out to seize him, for they were saying, 
He's out of his mind. This is bonkers. They've lived with Jesus his entire life. They know he's not a sinner. They know that he hasn't transgressed the law at all. And now he's doing amazing things. People are being healed. But he's also claiming to be the son of God. He's taking the title of of divinity for himself. You would think that if anybody could give witness to the fact that Jesus could claim that title for himself, it'd be his family. They, They knew him best. They were around him. They grew up with him, whatever the case might be. And yet they're thinking he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. We need to go get him. When we follow Jesus, we're going to be thought of as crazy. We just have to get okay with that. We got to be okay with the idea that if we truly stand up for Jesus, if we truly enact the teachings of Jesus in our life, people are going to think we're at the very least fringe. We're sort of on the edges, the margins of society. And, and at worst, they're going to think we're just completely bonkers, that we actually believe the things that we read in scripture. I think we have to be okay with that. I think we have to be okay with understanding what the Bible says, that this world isn't our home. We're pilgrims. We're in search of a heavenly home and a kingdom that is not of this world. When we remind ourselves of that, man, you know what? It makes dealing with things like loss. It makes dealing with things like like pain and suffering. I'm not going to say easier, but it makes them more purposeful, if that's a way we can understand it. That we know that the things that are going on around us that hurt us and that are hard to deal with, they're not a part of the kingdom that we're, that we're a part of. They're a part of the kingdom of this world, and we're told in Scripture that this world is passing away. We're experiencing it, we're in it, but it's passing away. The things that we experience here are not going to last for eternity. Death, suffering, pain, brokenness right? That stuff's not going to last for eternity. It's all passing away. And we have this beautiful privilege of being given this glimpse of what it's like, what we're looking for, for eternity. And we see it in Jesus. We see it in his interactions with people. And we see it in what he has called us to as a part of his kingdom, the love that we're to have for one another in fellowship and the love that we're supposed to express into the world as a witness to what Jesus has done for us. And so there is a certain amount of, let them think we're crazy. (laughs) Let them think we're bonkers, man. That's okay. It's okay as long as they think we're bonkers because we're living in the truth of Jesus, not trying to create some spectacle to get attention for ourselves, but we're just simply watching Jesus do what he shows us through the scriptures. At the end of this passage, we don't have time to go through the rest of it, but at the end of the passage uh, in verse 34, or pardon me, verse 33. No, let's finish it with verse 31. Let's just do this end one and then we'll get back to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and my sister and my mother. Several verses before, his family's trying to snatch him, trying to grab him because they think he's nuts. He's embarrassing our family, perhaps, right? 
But later on, Jesus gives this explanation. Hey, Jesus, your mom's calling, your brothers are calling, your sisters are calling, all that kind of stuff. And he just looks around and says, who's actually my family, right? It's those here who do the will of God, those who are obedient to God's will, those who are faithful. That idea of us being brothers and sisters, this has to be a place where when someone loses a parent, I'm thinking of these kids now who lost their mom today. They have a family structure, thankfully, and they'll be blessed in that. But man, our fellowship through the church, we have to be mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to them. We have to be brothers and sisters to one another and and think about each other and treat each other like we treat family whom we can trust and whom we would do anything for that's that's what jesus is saying true brotherhood true fellowship true family is those who are in agreement in the things of god that's important that's that's where that unity that jesus calls for later in the high priestly prayer is is so powerful Father, I pray that they would be one the same way that you and I are one. Same way that Jesus and the Father had fellowship. We're to have fellowship in that same way and be connected in that same way.